Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele as long as I have anything to say about it. On this episode, we're going to stop by Chicago and talk to really the Zen master of creative recipe design, Mr. Randy Mosier. We're going to sit down and talk about how you can make a recipe foolproof using Randy's simple recipe design philosophy and his way of blending beers. So sit back, relax, and get ready to have some fun talking the Zen of recipe design with Randy Mosier. But first, a word from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Hey, it's the Brew Files. It's time for another show. You know what this means. We're going to get into a brewing topic real quick. And we wanted to talk about recipe design. And, well, you know, when we're talking about recipe design, I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to than good old Randy Mosier. Randy, say hi to everybody. I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess I am. Uh, But anyway, yeah, hey, everybody. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for talking to you guys. Well, hey, so now, Randy, obviously you're known for a lot of, you know, a lot of creative recipe design, a lot of sort of information that you've been sharing out there for years. But, you know, really what we wanted to know is just first, how did you get into brewing? Uh, well, I think maybe it started when I went to school in Cincinnati and there were four local breweries still there, sort of barely surviving. And I, I guess I got it in my head that there there was the possibility of some local brewing or, or small breweries or some variety, even though they kind of all made more or less the same beer. So I guess I got in my head. And then, of course, like everybody else, uh, I started home brewing and it took over my life. And I started compiling this sheaf of worksheets and papers to help me fill it out, this sort of big binder full of stuff. And eventually uh, 
I got um, in touch with Charlie Finkel at Merchant Devan, and uh, he published the book and sort of brought me into the world of, of Michael Jackson and Charlie Papazian and Fred Eckhart and all those uh, those uh, early first-generation uh, heroes. And, uh, you know, the rest uh, is uh, well-known. So, Well, I was going to say, how many books are you up to now? Five. Five. Mm. Yeah. Born Print, Brewer's Companion, which was the one that Charlie published, have been out of print. Then uh, Radical Brewing, uh, then uh, Tasting Beer, uh, then more recently a new version of Tasting Beer, and then in between those were um, Mastering Homebrew and a, a Beer for All Seasons, sort of a, a seasonal kind of intro level uh, book that my publisher requested. Well, whenever the publisher requests something, you go, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, why not? You know, you never know. You, you know, it, it turns out that. Most of the us homebrew writers understand the homebrew and brewing uh, beer guy market better than the publishers do. But you know, uh, Brewer's Companion was the book that came with my very first homebrew kit. That was Charlie's genius. You know, he bundled that thing up and sold it. Huh. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, because my kit, my kit came from Pike Brewing. So, yep. uh, but, uh, you know, I can still remember the excitement that I got about brewing from reading that book, man. You did, you did a wonderful job of getting it across. I still remember sitting on my couch and going, Oh, that's what malt is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, there was, wasn't anything, there just wasn't much out there in terms of resources. So me and my buddy Ray were going to the, public library in Cincinnati and taking out all these old, you know, big old brewing books and just combing through it, looking at mashing charts and, you know, oh, look, there's a German Dreimeschverfahren decoction thing. It's like, wow, this is super crazy. And I've just sort of like loaded all that stuff into that book and in a kind of a spare and graphical way. So, Well, you know, you, you did a really amazing job of explaining technical brewing stuff, and I think that that's been a, a real strength of yours through all of your books, man. Uh, you make things so so clear in a way that even idiots like me can understand it. Well, it's that art and science thing of brewing, right? I'm, I'm trained as an artist, but I've always been interested in science, and until I hit algebra class in high school, I really was thinking I was going to be a scientist. And so, you know, that's, that's like, you find a lot of engineers who are drawn to beer because they get to do art. And for me, it's sort of the opposite. I really... I like both, you know, you get to use both halves of your brain. And so for me, it's always been trying to dig down and understand the science. And if you really understand it, it's, it's not that com complicated to explain, generally. <laughs> generally. <laughs> generally, sometimes, uh, unless you're talking about, say, oxidation. Yeah, well, until you start getting to the weeds, then suddenly things get very weird very quick. Yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll say, Denny started with that book of yours. I... I remember when Radical Brewing came out. I totally blame you for forcing me even down the weirder path than I already was. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's the writing. You've got a lot of uh, that expertise going on, a lot of sharing the knowledge. But what do you do nowadays uh, in terms of brewing? I mean, are you still whipping up batches of beer at home? No, I moved all my homebrew uh, system down to Five Rabbit. So I'm, I'm, you know, in the Chicago area, I'm involved as a, a minority partner and kind of creative consultant, I guess you'd say, or creative team member, let's say, with uh, a brewery called Five Rabbit Cerveceria. Uh, we're down on the south side by Midway Airport in a sort of industrial area with a 30-barrel production facility. We're trying to make 
we're trying to translate the beauty, wonder, and energy of Latin culture into craft beer. So that's our mission there. We, we're in our sixth, seventh year, I think, right now. And then I'm also similar kind of relationship uh, with a, a newer brewery that we have a brew pub operation uh, west of downtown, a couple miles, called Forbidden Root. And, it, and we were, were kind of doing a lot of botanical things. We, we were calling ourselves botanic brewers until we started realizing that's, that's actually kind of terrifying to a lot of the drinking public out there. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. People, like, they, the way they talk, you think, oh, yeah, I love everything. We want to try everything. But you, you put some crazy ingredient on the label and it, it just drives them away. So we're kind of rethinking the way we position ourselves, but we're still doing a lot of those things. We're trying to make really weird beers that are actually really delicious and subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's hard to explain to people. Well, so can you give us an idea of like, okay, let's talk a five rabbits beer. Like what's a good example of one there? One of our, well, two of our really early beers uh, that we still are still some of our better sellers. We make a beer called five lizard. That is a passion fruit whip. So it's straight up Belgian wit, which is a style I've always been really, really interested in and was lucky enough to talk to Pierre Sellis about it a few times. So it's like, if I have a personal passion, for a classic style, it's absolutely with beer. But we change it up instead of orange peel, we use fresh lime peel. So we peel like six whole crates of fresh limes every time we make that beer. And then we uh, dose it with a um, uh, aseptic passion fruit puree on like day three. So towards the end of fermentation when there's still some yeast activity, so we can ferment out that, that little bit of sugar that's in it. You know, that's our ceviche beer. It's just really bright, refreshing, crisp, a little bit luscious usually fruity. And then another beer called Five Vulture that is a, we call it Oaxacan dark ale. So it's not really trying to be a mole, but it's kind of inspired by those flavors in mole, but trying to make a beer that's really, even at 6.3%, is kind of refreshing, crisp on the palate, a little malty aroma, but dries out nicely. It's got some uh, unrefined Mexican cane sugar in it, uh, piloncillo. And it also has mulatto, ancho, and a little arbol or cayenne chili. The two first two really for that beautiful sort of raisiny, pruny chili kind of aroma you get from those black dried chilies. And the arbol just for just a little tickle of heat when you kind of warms your chest and tickles your throat when you stop drinking. So those two, I think, really really kind of represent our, our philosophy of what we're trying to do. So those have been, been fun to do. We, we still... We taste beer every week, whatever's currently been packaged, and uh, we're still making changes to beers after four or five years of producing some of them. Uh, as, like, as we can think of something, some way to make the beer a little cleaner, a little smoother, a little better balanced, a little better expression of what the idea is, we'll always roll those new ideas in and, and keep keep moving them. Well, great. Now, now I'm going to have to go run over to the grocery store and start my two-day mole recipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. One of one of the beers that influenced my early brewing was uh, from that Brewer's Companion book, a, a beer that you had in there called Nirvana that was uh, uh, wee heavy with chanterelles. My chanterelle beer. We actually brewed that for the uh, yeah, what was supposed to be the Mayan end of days. Uh, right. So we brewed that at Five Rabbit. Well, you know, when I saw that recipe, I thought to myself, you know, I can walk out my back door into this forest and pick my own chanterelles, so I need to make that beer. I so hate I... you so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's there's lots of nice things here. Oh, yeah. But uh, on the other hand, I can't sit down and pick up the phone and order a pizza. So 
where yep. <laughs> everybody has it a thing. Yep. So I've, I've brewed that beer a number of times and had a, a, quite a bit of success with it. Everybody says to me, how did you ever come up with the idea for a beer with mushrooms in it? And I say, well, like all my best ideas, it was stolen. What art is. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm going to put this on to you, man. How the hell did you come up with the idea to put chanterelles into a wee heavy? You know, it didn't come from nowhere. I some I don't know what I was reading, but I read that the Germans used chanterelles to flavor a schnapps. Really? And that was like, click, the light bulb went off, and it's like, oh, if you can make it, if you can put it in a schnapps, why couldn't you put it in beer? And I, you know, I knew chanterelles because I, like you, I'm a mushroom hunter, but we have a lot less, lot less available species that are worth eating out here in the Chicago metro area. I do have one tree that I go to in the fall for some end of the woods. But yeah, so I knew chanterelles, and I really always thought that aroma was just intoxicating and quite special. And it, and it, they aren't like regular mushrooms. They don't have a lot of earthiness to them. They have that sort of apricotty, fruity, perfumey thing. It's just really hard to describe, but I just find it one of the most amazing smells. I'd love to have like concentrated bottle of that for man perfume or something. <laughs> Chanterelle essence. Yeah, and, and it really works perfectly with the flavors in a wee heavy. And that was my my takeaway uh, from that beer is that you have to match the the weird stuff, the flavors of the weird stuff to the flavors of the beer because you don't want it to overwhelm or define it, you know? And yeah. uh, use, using your example, I've gone on like to do a a golden, a Belgian Golden Strong with uh, Matsutakis yeah. and brown ale with Portobellas and stuff. So, uh, you know, it's like what I took away from your beer was that it has to blend and not not have the the strange ingredient define the beer as so much as support it. Yeah, it's, it's sort of two relationships, really. And part of it is trying to find brewing ingredients that will support the flavors from your specialty ingredients. So if you think about a coffee beer or a chocolate beer, you know, you can do a lot of the heavy lifting with malts that have coffee-like or chocolate flavors. And then you lay that expensive specialty ingredient on top and kick in those nice aromatics. You also are trying to use ingredients in a way that sort of focus or sharpen, or integrate. You know, we find with a lot of the work we're doing for both breweries, really, that we think about using seasoning, spices, oddball ingredients, not in necessarily in ways where they're going to jump out and be like you can pick them out on the label, but that they're in more subtle ways, that you can add a little black pepper, and it kind of is like sharpening a lens, a focus ring on a lens. It just sort of brings things into brighter contrast and or... Kind of, you can use one and two or three ingredients where you might have used one. Or you can sort of smear, smear the the flavors. So you, you're basically adding a little more complexity. Just did a, a cherry beer at Forbidden Root. So we used three different kinds of cherries: two black and one Montmorency. And I put tiny amounts of cinnamon, clove, and a Middle Eastern uh, sort of prune pit that has a kind of a, a cherry pit or bitter almond sort of flavor. And the idea was to get up underneath those those fruit and kind of bump up the sort of inherent spicy and amaretto type of characters that you, you're going to expect from a cherry and just kind of heighten those a little bit and not really be a threshold particularly, but but have an effect nonetheless. Oh, man. If, if only more people had that kind of philosophy when they put uh, unusual ingredients into their beer, I'd probably like a lot more of them. Well, yeah. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, you think about how hard beer is to make. Just to get three things in balance is, is right. difficult. <laughs> so 
adding another element or two elements or five elements, or we did a collaboration at Forbidden Root with uh, Fernet Branca, uh, which is that really crazy, bitter Italian. It's not an Amaro because it's dry, but it's sort of like an Amaro liqueur. And they have 37 ingredients in their mix. And we knocked that down to 20 because we skipped the birch mushrooms that are just there for like a stomach purpose. And there was like way too much bitter chinchona and things like that. So we cut that down. So you're trying to get all this stuff into balance and work together to create a harmonious whole. And also you're trying to like, you can't, I don't think it's a good idea to just like make something and stick some, stick some herbs in it. You really want a story. You know, you really want to like wrap it all up in a way that people can comprehend what it is you're trying to get at with the beer, you know, to tell some particular story. I love the story concept. And I use that all the time. Yeah. I think people, well, like I always use the example when I'm talking to people about recipes about of like the Bible, right? So the Bible, I don't know how big it is, 2,000 pages or something. And really, if you took all the all the really important points in it, you could bullet point them on one side of an eight and a half by eleven double spaced sheet. But it takes 2,000 pages of stories to get it through people's heads, you know, to really kind of make the point. And I think it's it's just like how we're built as people. If you don't have that story, it's really hard to. It's hard to talk about it. It's hard to give it a name. It's hard to help people understand where you're coming from. I mean, with homebrewing, you, you know, it's like, here's my beer taste it. what do you think? But when you're, when you're out there on, a, on the market, especially a really crowded market, you got to try and find ways to get people inside your head a little bit. So we like to do that, and especially, you know, with, a, with the Five Rabbit, because we've got a really specific kind of hemisphere where we're trying to represent, you know, and tell stories about Latin America through the beers that we're putting together. And then the other thing about specialty ingredients is, like, each specialty ingredient is as complicated as hops, right? Coriander, it's grown all over the world. It's all completely different. You know, I do tastings of herbs and spices for for homebrew and people classes and stuff, and I bring six different kinds of coriander, and people are absolutely blown away that there could be six different kinds of coriander, and I know there's probably a hundred different kinds. I just don't have them in my possession with coriander as a specific example i think you introduced me to the idea of indian coriander as opposed to mexican coriander i'm down here in los angeles so that's what i see all the time sure yeah it's quite different yeah it was like trying the indian coriander for the first time in a whitbeer was like oh oh no that's completely different right we had a situation at the brewery i walked in one day and tasted the five lizard and it's like whoa 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 what's going on with the coriander because it had that sort of cilantro kind of thing mm-hmm. and i actually went on the internet and all right, I got to figure out what it is that's doing this. Like what is this? Why does some coriander taste like old hot dog water and some coriander just tastes sublime and citrusy and piney and resiny. And it turns out that there are chemicals in there that change during ripening. And there are these uh, compounds called saturated aldehydes that are responsible for that cilantro flavor. And uh, generally it's subject to breed and location, but also to the degree of ripeness of the seeds when they're harvested. So if they're left to mature properly, those saturated aldehydes that are present in the seeds will kind of go away and then you'll get more linalool and some of these other flavors that are really more responsible for what you are looking for out of coriander. But it, but it, again, it's like every ingredient is a huge rabbit hole. You know, you think about the complexity of hops, like that with, with vanilla or the cinnamon or coriander or whatever you might want to be using, cherries or, you know, really anything. For me, that's like a great delight just to be able to chase all this stuff down. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. But it, but it does show that, that it, to do those beers right, 
you got to really put a ton of effort into researching them and, and don't just assume, like, oh, I'll just get some coriander. Well, no, not really, because you can really make a lot of bad beer with that kind of attitude. Well, so that makes me wonder, when you have all these ingredients at your fingertips, how do you go about exploring what they're going to taste like without, you know, risking, say, a whole batch of beer? I mean, do you have a preferred technique? Because I think flavors can also change based on, you know, the presentation methodology you're using with them. So beer versus a tea or something. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. But, you know, we do, with both breweries, we do an awful lot of what we call tabletop blend-ups. Before we pilot anything, we will uh, work with either calibrated tinctures, which are basically, if you take three grams of coriander and grind it up and you put it in 10 grams of vodka, now you've got a, uh, well, sort of almost a three-to-one calibration of a known quantity and a known quantity of alcohol. And, you know, you can use a pipette or and, and get a, you know, get some little beakers and, and a pipetter that'll allow you to deliver specific microliter doses into, say, 100 mils of beer. And, um, you know, that'll give you a pretty good idea of what that beer, what that's going to taste like. You, you know, you're right. It does matter how you incorporate it in the brewing process and, and, um, you know, whether you're in the whirlpool or whether you're in, the fermenter or there's lots of there's lots of variables but we find that that at least directionally like if you're trying out three or four different kinds of coriander make a little alcohol tincture and try them all and you you get real quick idea of what's going to work and what's not going to work and and more or less an idea of scale too as well now again it doesn't always translate but that'll get you close enough to do a pilot or a homebrew batch and of course for homebrewers you can take those tinctures and instead of using them as tabletop testing you can actually use those at the at the end of the process and load that stuff in right when you're when you're ready to package to keg or bottle. And I, that I've I've been recommending people do that since the early days. And it really is a great tool for home brewers. It's not you can't really add a lot of alcohol to your beer in a commercial brewery, but uh, it's a it's a great tool for pilots and a really great tool for home brewers, especially for things that are complex like a Christmas beer where you got four or five spices. You're trying to get them all in balance. It's a lot easier to do it if, you, if you've got a way of kind of getting the mixture right and then getting the scaling correct. Now, I've always wondered about that sort of macho uh, brewing thing that says, oh, it's got to go in the kettle or else it isn't proper. I think we're starting to defeat that. But uh, I don't know. I, I never heard that. I think that, that it's, it's whatever works, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in a commercial brewery, if you can do it in the whirlpool, that's the easiest way. You know, that that works great for coriander, for cinnamon, for allspice, for different kinds of things. There's certain things like hibiscus, for example. First time we used hibiscus in a beer, we got a really cloudy beer. I was like, hmm, wonder what's going on there. And so I looked up hibiscus, and it turns out one of the bigger components of hibiscus is pectin. Well, duh. <laughs> right? So we, we put it in the whirlpool. It was 100, you know, 200 degrees. And, of course, we set the pectin. So the next time we used it, we figured out, okay, what's the set point of pectin? In, and, you know, it's like 130 Fahrenheit. So the next time we did it, we did a like a warmish tea extraction and added that in at you know into the chiller in the hot back, and then we got a beautiful clear thing, and that's been the process ever since. So you know you make mistakes, you learn, you do a little research, and again you know everything has a has a chemistry, a biology, a botany. So let's let's jump back here to your your philosophy about recipe design. Um, for from my point of view, I kind of like see. 
two general ways to do it. There's what I call the the top-down approach, where you envision the finished beer and figure out what it takes to get you there. And then there's what I call the bottom-up approach, where you look at the ingredients that you want to use and start putting them together and see where that takes you. Do you tend to use one of those approaches more than the other? I think they're both useful. You know, for example, like if you're trying to formulate an IPA, we we made we held off for quite a while at, at Five Rabbit on an IPA because we just thought, you know, how does this fit our mission? And then, of course, it's 50% of the market, and we started to feel foolish for not having an offer. So we did a lot of trials, and we did some trials on base malts. I mean, we sort of we sort of wrote the copy that would go on the label as far as what's the general gist of this beer that we're trying to make. You know, we wanted to be a modern IPA, which meant not much crystal malt, especially not much like 60 or 80 Lovabon crystal, and uh, just a, like a pretty clean, lighter color, just a little bit of caramelly to kind of help balance the hops out. And then we knew we wanted to use more modern, well, newer generation hops, but we didn't want to go all in and have to deal with a production beer that we're trying to you know, figure out how to get 500 pounds of Galaxy every year. Right, so we were trying to be clever about what the hops were that had some nice flavors that we could put together cleverly and create a sort of a blend of multiple different hops that were not going to break the bank, you know, because six pack beers your margins are quite tight on anyway, and uh, so so we we ended up doing is brewing a couple of pilot batches to get the grain bill right, and then once we kind of figured that out, we did a lot of little dry hop experiments that so we brewed. 10 gallons, and then we split that out and did 10 uh, individual dry hop tests in gallon jugs, and then we blended those. Then we blended those together in various ratios to end up with a mix that what we thought was really like where we wanted to be with the beer. And then we then we brewed a full on pilot of it, and that like gave us the confidence to go ahead and brew a 60 barrel or 90 or whatever it was. You know, the the hard thing to do that takes some time to develop is to really internalize the vocabulary of your ingredients and, and processes to some extent so that you have the ability to picture something in your head and almost like look at a beer and roll it around in your mouth and understand, oh, I'm looking for this sort of like little bit of raisiny quality. Okay, that might be a little 40 love on caramel. And I want some, I want a tiny bit of crispness. So that may be a pale malt, pale ale malt rather than a, than a pill malt. And, you know, it takes some time to familiarize yourself with the ingredients and how they translate. And so for people who are trying to get their head around certain styles or being really deliberate about making that great, say, English pale ale or whatever it happens to be, going bottom up with, like, just trying to learn these ingredients and familiarize yourself with the ingredients is really important. But then on the other hand, ultimately, I think you want to get to the point where you can start top down and say, here's what I want to go go with, and based on your experience, be able to put the things together in a way that's going to get you pretty close the first time. You know, you're always going to be revising and, and, and making adjustments. You know, it depends on what your level of uh, perfection you're trying to achieve. We're, we're in a commercial breweries, we see no, no upper limit to how perfect we want these beers to be. So if we can think of something to make it better, we will do that. So, I mean, they're both really useful ways of uh, going about it. So can you think of any time you tried something that just did not work? We've had a few attempts. We had a couple of the guys in, in on the beer team at Five Rabbit that have had it in their heads. They wanted to make a white stout, 
that's a concept I've never quite seen um, realized. You, know, <laughs> you and me way. both, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. I, you know, admire them for trying, but it was sort of like, I don't know, I don't get this, and it's not working, and probably not gonna, but let's, what the hell, let's try it and see if we can do it. So that's one that had, didn't, didn't work. I've been around a while, you know, so I've got a fair idea of what not to do. But was there one, like, when you hadn't been around for quite a while that you tried to do that was like, oh, yeah, no, that's a bad idea, and you've never revisited? Well, I was fascinated with cocoa. I really wanted to use cocoa in a beer and, and made a couple batches. Cocoa is not the right ingredient to get chocolate flavor in a beer. It's pretty harsh. It tends to kind of come across kind of gritty and bitter and not real pleasant. So what's your favorite way to get chocolate into the beer now? Well, I don't know. I don't know that we've really discovered it. We've used cocoa mass. Uh, that really gives you, like, really basically unsweetened baking chocolate. That's just ground-up nibs, more or less. Uh, and it, it really gets you an extremely nice flavor. But the problem is, especially in the commercial setting, you get terrible yield. Because that sludgy um, chocolate is, of course, it's a very, there's a large amount of oil in there. It's not really a problem for the beer's head or anything. But, but it tends to make a sludgy goo that takes a very long time to settle out. And we had a we made a Mexican chocolate beer. It had a lot of really interesting things in it, but but we got a 50% yield on that beer. So we ended up with like 10 barrels that we racked off into half barrel. Like we, we're just throwing this stuff away out of the bottom of the tank. It's like, oh man, we, we can't throw away 15 barrels of this stuff. Like we got it. So we started kegging them off. So we were just kegging off kegs of sludge. And it took, like when we looked at, we just stuck them in the cooler and we looked at them about a year later and there's the, the top, like, there's a bunch of really compact, sludgy stuff on the bottom, but the top stuff now is super fine and really lovely, and we're going we're gonna to roll that all into some barrels, I think. Now, there is a new product made by a company in Colorado that is an emulsified chocolate. It's pure chocolate. It's uh, a chalaca. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's a, I think it's Peruvian, maybe, or Mexican, but it's a, a single-origin cacao. It's a fair trade. You know, it's like organic, all the good stuff. But it's emulsified in a way that uh, allows it to kind of dissolve into beer a lot better. We've got some samples. We're looking forward to trying that. I have heard from people who have used it that they thought it added, it was really useful and it added a lot of great qualities, but it didn't quite make whole chocolate character. So they've had good luck adding some supplemental uh, nibs in addition. And, and that's pretty typical. You sometimes find, you know, when you're looking for a real specific aroma profile or flavor profile from some ingredient, one type of ingredient source doesn't quite provide the whole character. And then you need to go back and add top note or add bottom note or some really kind of mix two or three different things together to get just exactly the right um, presentation of whole character. Let's just make sure we've got so far, I think I've captured five things for your recipe design philosophy. So one was to use base ingredients with the same sort of character to help allow your special ingredients to sort of drive the over the top notes. Uh, your example of coffee uh, yep. used layered ingredients to add complexity. So as you were talking about with both the Fernet Broncos example and the other one where you're talking about having three types of cherries, cinnamon, uh, malab, and a couple other things in order to get real complexity and layer in flavors. So the third point was to have a story because it helps the user to sort of focus in on what the experience should be. And not just the user, the brewer. You know, there's so many decisions to make when you make a beer that 
you have to have a big, you have to have that guiding principle. You have to have that big idea, or else you're just making decisions sort of randomly. So even for the brewer, it's really helpful to have that. Have that like, what am I really trying to do here? Sorry, I'm a computer guy, so I usually think in terms of the user always. <laughs> We're the only one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why i'm good at my job all right uh number four was uh specialty ingredients that we have to have a realization that they're complex and that they have just as many different varieties as what we think about in terms of hops including things like harvest times so again going to the coriander example and then the fifth point that i've captured so far is that table blends are your friend yeah, you know, I kind of get used to the idea that if you really want to explore things, make tinctures, blend it with beer, try to make a different uh, different sets of beers or different exampled flavored beers to get your blends together to decide, okay, this is roughly what I'm going to do for the final product. Exactly. Buy a pipetter. Are there, are there any other points to your recipe design philosophy that you think that aren't captured in those five points so far? Well, we could talk a little bit in some detail about like looking at formulation on malt. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think for, for me, I always start with the middle-colored malt because for most beers, at least the way I like to make beer, I, I really think that's the most impo- important place to start. So you kind of start with, like, what, am, what malts am I adding for character? You know, and it, that'll depend upon whether you're making a, a lighter, you know, a paler beer or a darker beer or a middle-colored beer. You have different choices and different options. But I think if you start, if you're making, you know, if you're making a, a, a Pilsner beer, for example, like, Okay, I can use Pilsner malt. I can use all Pilsner malt, but do I want to add a little bit of, of Vienna or a tiny pinch of caramel tin or something, you know, for character? And then you fill those and you put those in your recipe because you kind of, those you're sort of going to guess by, oh, I'll do that like 5% of this or 2% of that or whatever. So now you got 5 or 7%. And then you, then you go on to your, then you go on to what your base malts are going to be, depending upon, you know, how, how sort of, sweet or dry or crisp or round or whatever you're like, whatever you want to get out of those base malts. And then you look at where your color comes in and then you can always come back in and make some adjustments with some darker malts, some really neutral darker malts. If you want, just like add color at the end with a little bit of uh, carafa or something, black prints, one of those type of uh, debittered blacks. And so I think that gives you a pretty good opportunity to, to nail the color, nail the gravity you know, work with the, uh, get that, get that right kind of character malt in there. Yeah. And, and it's funny that you say that. And I realize, I mean, I think I probably usually start with the base malts. I mean, the base malt for me is just, okay, what, so am I doing a Marisada or am I doing a Pills? Right. But yeah. I think, I think the first time I actually really get into sort of the decisions and weighing out part is when I'm looking at those, you know, what sort of caramels, what sort of Vienna or what sort of toasted malts am I using in the beer? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point, because I think those do drive a lot of character. We've for so long been fixated on caramel malt. I mean, that was it for for first 30 years of homebrewing. Like, you hardly ever found a beer, craft, beering too, craft brewing too, you hardly ever found a beer that didn't have some 40 or 60 love amount caramel in it. And I'm really happy now, finally, after all this time, we're, that's starting to be seen as kind of old school. Uh, they have their uses, but I think we were overusing them, probably because it was just like can of malt extract, pound of crystal, there's your homebrew recipe right there. You know, everybody started that way, so it just became kind of habitual. When all you have is a screwdriver, everything's going to be a screw. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, too, in terms of the malt world, is we have so many new craft maltsters coming out uh, with really interesting flavors to the malts they're making, too. Yeah. yeah, we've hardly really started to explore that. 
We do use some dark malts from a, a company called Patagonia that's in Chile. And they have some dark, they have a, a caramel 170, I think a caramel 190, and a, and a black that's very nice. And that caramel 170 is sort of a signature malt for us because it's very kind of like smoothly cocoa-y. It's, right. it's a really unusual malt. There's really nothing else that I've ever used that's like that. So we really like that for, for, for our darker beers, for our chocolate beer, for our, our five vulture, the dark ale. Interesting you should mention that because I was in Chile about a week ago and uh, went to a, a brewery there called Tubinger and they had just piles and piles of Patagonia malt all over the place. It's very good quality. And, and of course, for yeah. us, it's, it's another aspect of our story because, you know, we love using Latin America malt, but uh, we really find those those uh, products nobody else is really making. Yeah, right. Well, so uh, any other any other notes that we should take on uh, recipe design? No, I think that's really it. You know, just have an idea, pursue it relentlessly, um, trust your taste, build up that model. You know, I think that's really important as you, as you grow as a brewer. You know, there's so many technical hurdles. You can kind of focus on water treatment that your eyes go across. You know, grow as a taster to, to get better and better as a taster to really know your malt. One of the things I was saying to my Siebel class yesterday is like, everybody I know who's a really good brewer, one thing they do is they've always got their hand in that malt sack. You know, they're constantly kind of trying to replenish and re reinforce that model that they've got in their heads of what all this stuff tastes like. And that's something that you can't do enough of, uh, just to really keep that model fresh and active and try and understand, you know, deconstruct beers when you taste a beer in the marketplace. Like, how do they get that flavor? What do they use in that? Of course, sometimes that's on the, their website. You can actually go and look it up. Sometimes not so much, but, um, you know, I think that's uh, underrated. If you you know you can't approach it too technically because the technical stuff is certainly important, but but if you're not building yourself into like really being able to model these things and having that having that vocabulary and inventory in your head, um, that's always going to be a limitation. And, and don't be afraid to tweak to perfection, huh? You have to. I mean, it's like I said, we've been we've got beers, simple beers that have you know five ingredients, and we've been tweaking them for six years. And we're still like, right. I don't know, maybe one more little change, maybe 10% of this in and out and, and you know, kind of like, what do we want? And, of course, the, the market changes, too, commercially. Sometimes a beer is a never-ending story. <laughs> that, that's the pleasure of it, really. I mean, do you ever really want it, to – it's the journey, not the destination, right? Do you ever want to, like, get there? So before we leave, we usually like to talk about a recipe or, you know, some sort of – how you build up a recipe, something that you're proud of, and you know, really kind of use that to kind of get into your head about you know, how do you do this. So, do you have a recipe that you uh, that you're kind of proud of that you've been working on that you, that you'd like to share? Yeah, like like all the stuff I do, it's sort of team effort. But um, let's talk about our our cacao beer that we made at uh, Five Rabbit a year ago or so. So this was our version of a, of one of those Mexican hot chocolate beers that people people do. But we we dug a little deeper. We wanted to really get inside uh, the pre-Hispanic, Mesoamerican, Mayan approach to chocolate. And so we did a lot of research on trying to figure out, like, what, what herbs and spices and flavorings can be used. Of course, usually there's chocolate. There's usually vanilla. There's usually uh, some, some form of chili. So we knew we were going to probably start with those things. But we identified another, another flavoring that's a, actually a seed of a tropical fruit called a mame. And um, mame is sort of like a big fuzzy avocado, but it's orange inside. It has this really delicious, creamy flesh. But this, we didn't use the flesh, but we used the seed. 
which have a really beautiful kind of amaretto flavor. And we were lucky enough to get a, a family uh, that produces vanilla in Oaxaca to send us a box of these seeds. And uh, we used those in there. For chili, we, we thought we were originally, I had the idea that we were going to use some ancho uh, or some one of those really dark, dried Mexican chilies. But what we found is that it tasted too much like chocolate and, and it didn't differentiate itself enough from the cacao. So we ended up trying about, I think we made like 25 different chili, roasted ground up chili paste, and we just stuck our fingers in them and went through them. And I think in the end we ended up with pasilla because it's, it's a, um, a lighter colored, uh, sort of a red rather than a black chili. And it just has a really chili flavor. And we found that that kind of jumped, that kind of stuck out and really jumped out and identified itself as chili in a way that the ancho and mulatto like melded in and blended in a way that made them sort of go away. And then, uh, you know, we, we took all this stuff uh, in, and blended it up, did tabletop blend ups. We tried a bunch of different ingredients. Another one that we tried that we really liked was uh, toasted sesame seeds because that's another traditional ingredient. And we found, or I'm sorry, not sesame a pumpkin seeds, very traditional Latin American, uh, Mexican type of ingredient. And what we found is that, that that really added a huge amount of nuttiness that kind of bumped up that nutty aspect of ch- that you find, sometimes find in chocolate. So it, was, it wasn't exactly a chocolate flavor, but it was sort of one of the aspects that you do find in chocolate, so it was super harmonious with it. And then we put it all together, and again, we, we used some of that um, Patagonia C-170 because for us that's really super chocolatey kind of in flavor. And then uh, we used some, uh, I think we got a uh, Peruvian Criollo uh, chocolate, which is a pretty high, pretty high quality. Chocolate range is crazy in terms of its price, so it's kind of a challenge to find a pretty good chocolate that wasn't uh, ridiculously expensive, too, really too expensive for a, um, a commercial batch. And that Peruvian stuff was uh, kind of hit the sweet spot for us. And then we put it all together um, Brewed a pilot, we got pretty close with the pilot, and then uh, put it together and brewed the beer, and it really tasted quite delicious. So, how many iterations do you think it took to get to the to the, that pilot batch? Well, we did a lot of just kind of just kind of blend ups, you know, and then tried to take our best guess on how much of what we were going to use, um, you know, and also you have the ability when you're doing multiple batches uh, to fill a fermenter. So we're, doing, we're brewing 30, but we're filling into 60 and 90 barrel um, uh, fermenters. So if we can taste the first batch, because uh, we'll quite often brew batch one the day before, and then we'll come back in the next day and add batch two. So we can kind of throttle back or forward uh, an ingredient that we think ah, maybe needs more chili or needs a little less chili. So we can, we can compensate on that second or third turn for what we almost got right in the first turn. So, so that gives us a little more flexibility. Obviously, uh, you don't have that in home brewing, but but you got other tools. Oh no, no, no! You have it in home brewing. You just have to be dedicated. <laughs> not too many people are, filling, are brewing multiple batches to fill on a for fill a fermenter. I, I imagine there are some, but <laughs> that's uh, that, that's like the guy we had in Chicago that was brewing ten gallons a week just to keep the band together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As with all things on the internet, never doubt that there's a home brewer out there doing something insane. You can count on it. That's right. Well, hey, Randy, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us. Uh, you know, really appreciate you kind of downloading some of these uh, hints. And for everybody who is listening, we'll make sure that we get this into sort of a more compact form so that you'll know uh, 
you know, what to do if you want to follow the Randy Mosier School of Recipe Design. Uh, in the meanwhile, if you're in, uh, where are Five Rabbits and Forbidden, uh, Forbidden Root distributed? Just in the Chicago area or beyond? The states aren't exactly, they don't exactly match, but generally Ohio, Indiana, Florida, um, and Illinois. Five Rabbits in Wisconsin also. So we got a little bit, not super limited footprint. Um, both both have hospitality places here in the Chicago area, so so come by. Uh, we, our Forbidden Root was just named second best group of in the whole Chicago area. So we were pretty thrilled about that. So we've got a very high quality chef in there doing some doing some cool stuff, doing some New England IPA. Oh no, please! No, actually, well, we could talk about that at another date. But we think there's some there there if they're done right. It's been a challenge. It's like making us rethink a lot of uh, what we've been doing with beer. So that's kind of an interesting thing to do. And are we going to see you in Portland for uh, HBC next summer? I expect so. Cool. Well, we'll get together and have a beer. How's that Absolutely. sound? Thank you up on that. We'll go chantrell hunting if it's. Oh yeah. Well, it'll be uh, it'll be a little bit late for the spring and early for the fall, but we'll figure out something. Okay. All right. <laughs> cool, man. Thanks again, Randy. Talk to you later. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of Randy Mosier and his recipe design philosophy, and exactly, well, just how to go make weird beers safely and with a good, you know, chance of success. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, on Slack, on just about every homebrewing forum known out there to mankind and other species. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the Desi Strong Foundation and Axel's Angels fighting pediatric cancer. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky or brew experimentally and the brew is out there. Oh,